Hey everybody, no new episode this week, but we do have an episode for you that you might not have heard because it's never been on iTunes. This is an episode where we talk about all our favorite movies of 2014. We released it as part of Smug Film Club, which is our mailing list where we send you all sorts of bonus content. We started that up at the beginning of the year and we expected we'd be putting out stuff like every month you get something extra. We kind of slacked on it. We kind of fell behind. So this is the only thing we've ever actually released from Smug Film Club. But we're going to be getting back into that. We're going to be actually releasing bonus content. So if you want some bonus content, if you want some bonus podcast episodes, go to smugfilm.com slash club. Put in your name and your email address. And then when we have something for you, it'll be in your inbox. I promise you, this time, there will be more bonus content than just one thing. And so, without further ado, all our favorite films of 2014. Enjoy. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. This is our Christmas special. This is a special bonus one. This is like pre the beginning of the new season, season two of Smug Film. This is like a special holiday gift. This is our gift towards everybody that listens. You weren't expecting this. You thought you weren't going to get any in December. But here, you have something in December. So you should be very happy. You should enjoy this. I'm here today with John D'Amico. Yo. And Jenna Ipcar. Yo. All right, who wants to go first with their best film of 2014? I'll go first. All right, Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> well, 2014, that's actually, I thought, been a pretty decent year for new movies. There's been a lot of very interesting surrealist movies, of which I wrote an article about, which uh, I'm very happy about. That was a good piece. Yeah, and, and even since uh, those ones, uh, a couple more have come out even. You know, you got like a Zero Theorem and The Double. and uh, I think you might have tackled The Double, right? Yeah, the, well, I love the double. Yeah. The double was awesome. But I think that, you know, actually I even mentioned it on that. My favorite movie of the year is definitely just Jodorowsky's Dune, the documentary about uh, the director Jodorowsky and how he tried and tried to make Dune. He got everybody together. Like, you know, he sort of, he did that, I'll picture it and it'll come to me. And it came, <laughs> except for the final step of actually making the film. Mm. And it's, that just that documentary was inspiring. I, I was just on such a high after watching that for like a month uh, plus. And it's just, it's just, he is such an amazing person and his sort of like energy level, the way that he thinks about things, you know, he never hired actors. He, he hired spiritual warriors to fight <laughs> with him, you know, like he trained his son yeah. for like two years to be like a freaking judo master to, be like ready for this film. I mean, this completely ridiculous stuff. And, you know, you see his son in the movie and he has no resentment, <laughs> thankfully, because mm. otherwise that could have been a major uh, problem. But uh, I just, I loved it. I mean, it just was such an out there, amazing movie with like so much talent. And then, you know, so much came out of it, which is also fantastic. Half of these sci-fi movies, like from Star Wars to... Alien. I mean, they all came out of Jodorowsky's Dune from those people meeting, uh, you know, creating that movie. So I would super recommend it. If you don't even know who he is, like, it's just a crazy movie to watch and really exciting. It got me super excited. Is it one you could watch like again and again? I think so. Granted, I've only I've only seen it the one time. One. But like you, if you would be into like watching it like tomorrow or something hell yeah because there's so many bizarre details and mm. there's just like so much so many people were brought together there were so many little they have these beautiful illustrations the whole thing is uh illustrated by uh comic book artist mobius mm. uh who yeah, is fantastic. amazing exactly so i mean there's just so much in there the, there's crazy great music and then he's just such a character he's just so bizarre so it's, it's i would super watch it I've i've recommended it to everybody that i've uh, you know, scene. And usually, you know, I'm not the type that goes for the documentary over the movie, quite honestly, but I just, it, it was just so awesome. I've just never felt that like elated after leaving of like, man, I wish that this had been made. And uh, I'm, you know, kind of happy it didn't just so I could watch this. Nice. Like, so crazy. 
Loved it. I want to see that approach more with other stuff like um, Dave Allen's The Primevals or like the Orson Welles unfinished projects. What's The Primevals? Primevals was this movie um, that this guy, David Allen, who was a stop motion animator, um, when that was sort of starting to wane as as an art form, just as the computer stuff was starting to pick up. Uh, he'd been working on it for a long time. He was the guy who did Flesh Gordon. He did the monsters and that. And he had a really famous Volkswagen commercial where um, King Kong gets into a little Volkswagen. But he had this idea for like a sci-fi spectacle type thing, a sort of throwback where it was uh, like aliens and um, and ape men in like a lost world. And there's some footage of it that's surviving and it's really beautiful stuff. And this guy, Jim Danforth, who's another animator, is trying to restore it now. Oh, nice. So kind of like the Thief and the Cobbler. Yeah, yeah, a lot like that. Yeah. But they just don't have the money, I think, to really get it get it out there but there's you know like they say it's mostly done they say there's a work print assembled oh wow but all that's trickled out is like a handful of stills and a few um maybe 45 seconds of the movie on youtube and it's really cool and i'd love to see what they did with dune with with that movie right, but some yeah. of those other movies that never made it to the finishing line it's so it's so wonderful like also, to just get a story like that of something that didn't even finish, you know, it's a fail, yeah. it's a failure. And yet there's so much good that comes out of failure, you know, like to really like highlight all the people that were just inspired by it, all the people that have like spent years trying to restore it, you know, like that's just like, that's fantastic, you know, mm. and this didn't even get off the goddamn ground, you know? Yeah. And it's like you have uh, with literature, you have people who are like restore and release like posthumous works of things that, you know, people were working on near the end of their life and they never finished. And I would love to right. see, I think the Dune documentary was a great way to figure out how movies can have that same, that same sort of afterlife. That's an awesome comparison actually, because I think of a, uh Kafka's The Castle is one of yeah. my favorite books and that's unfinished but like that's the perfect ending <laughs> like it almost like you know and, and Kafka I think was trying to burn it by the end of his life but to end it where it's like you know it just spirals and spirals into nothingness and it suddenly stops like awesome you know and yeah that totally could work with movies and it does yeah yeah that was a great documentary that that was a hell of a movie what about you favorite movie Calvary I don't even know that yeah what's that one Calvary was, uh, the guy who did In Bruges, was his brother, mm. uh, wrote and directed it. It's this beautiful little, like, 90-minute drama about a priest in a small town in Ireland that's sort of recovering from um, the fucking, the economic collapse and from um, church sexual abuse scandals. Yeah, I think I did hear about that one, though. Yeah, and he's like a good priest, you know. It's kind of like... Um, Is it uh, Gleason? Yeah, it's yeah. Brendan Gleeson. Oh, yeah. I saw the trailer for that. Yeah, yeah. that looked really good. Yeah, it was kind of like Diary of a Country Priest, and, you know, it's just sort of like follows his his day-to-day -day routine. And he's a good guy, he's a good priest, and everybody in the town loves him, but um, they don't like the institution, so he's sort of like stuck, you know? And what happens is he's he's hearing confession one day, and this guy tells him that um, next Sunday at confession, he's going to come back and kill him. And it's about that week of him just trying that to figure out great. what's going on. Uh, yeah, that trailer, there were so many good people in that. Well, the thing about it was, I think 2014 was a really good year for movies in a lot of ways. I think a lot of good stuff came out this year, and cinematography this year, I think, was like through the roof. It was one of the best years for camera work in a long time. But I think, in general, I was not impressed with the writing of a lot of movies this year, especially even ones I liked a lot. I thought the writing was sort of choppy in a lot of them. And this was the only one this year that I thought was just beautifully written. I mean, the dialogue was, you forget that people can do dialogue like that anymore because you just don't hear it a lot in movies now. It's It's been deprioritized in the past few years. Does so it, this was a breath of fresh air in that way, I think. Does it feel like the kind of movie from like a different era or does it feel like now or? It feels like now, but with the sort of exactness of speech that you don't get sure. in a lot of stuff now. But I mean, you know, like the themes and the the anxieties of it are very now. But there's just a, a a care to it and a precision to the way people talk that I didn't find in a lot of movies this year. Right. Even ones I liked a lot. What about you? I haven't seen too many this year. The only one that I like I really adored and is worth talking about is They Came Together, which might be David Wayne's best film. And I love all his stuff. I love Role Models and Wet Hot American Summer and The Ten, you know. He's brilliant. Yeah, he's just 
another level. And this one's just tremendous. It's, you know, it's the kind of Zucker Brothers kind of spoof. It's like a throwback to that, but, you know, not throwback in the sense of the comedy is dated. You know, it's it's very now and it's almost ahead of its time as far as the comedy goes. Like you see like all the reviews for it on Amazon and there are a ton of one star reviews on there from people saying like it was wasn't funny at all. It was just boring. It was stupid. I don't know why, you know, Paul Rudd or Amy Poehler did this. Like it has a two star overall rating on Amazon currently. But the people that absolutely love it, it's a five star movie for them. And it's like the funniest movie they've ever seen. And it was the hardest I've laughed at the movie in as long as I can remember. It's it's just so polarizing. And I just love when things are that funny and they're that polarizing at the same time. I'm so bummed that I missed that. I have to, I'm going to rent it. But that, like, your description makes me think of Hot Rod, which is my favorite <laughs> stupid movie. Yeah, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't call it like a stupid movie. It's just like the jokes can be completely there for one person and not there at all for another person. Like there's right. this opening scene where it's people talking, like having dinner. And it's an amazing parody of like the Woody Allen people talking, having dinner and like the places the conversations go. But somebody could watch that scene and think there was nothing funny about it whatsoever unless you knew about that kind of Woody Allen trope and understood that it was imitating that and doing it extremely well. So it's jokes like that that like people can just completely miss. People have a habit of declaring comedies stupid and action movies too. It feels like it just becomes a gut reflex that's frankly stupid to yeah. do that. I remember when This Is The End came out and everybody was calling it stupid. And I was sitting there, I was like, did you people watch the same movie I did? Because that movie, man, the caliber of, of just craftsmanship that went into that movie, even if you didn't think it was funny. You rewatched that one recently, right? Yeah, I watched it uh, a couple weeks ago because my friend hadn't seen it. And it's, if anything, funnier than I even remembered it being. Nice. That movie, that one was so funny that there was one part of it that I almost had to walk out of the theater because I was laughing so hard and I couldn't <laughs> breathe. It was the McBride Franco argument with the porn magazine. I almost had to leave the theater. <laughs> I like couldn't breathe. But yeah, like people, they'll they'll jump to stupid to describe comedy and action a lot, and it's just thoughtless. I think most yeah, of the time, it's a misuse of the word stupid. Yeah, you know. I think there there's stupid humor, and then there's also I can I can get it. I, I think that like. Well, I don't know. So stupid humor to me is just something that's like really obvious sort of like slapstick kind of humor to me is like dumb. That's like dumb humor, but it's great. It's not to say that it's actually dumb. You know, it's just like the category. Whereas like action, I would like freaking all those Fast and Furious movies are pretty dumb to me. But people like that. I think people it's like mindlessness. There's nothing mindless about Fast Five, though. I mean, that's really? another one where it's incredibly well-crafted. Nah. I mean, that movie is so precise. Yeah, whenever you're crafting something, it's hard to call it stupid. And the number of characters that are juggled in that movie, it's through the roof. And the number of just different... I mean, like, the pacing of that movie alone. It, it's one of those things that all the people who call it stupid could never do that. You could never make a movie that carefully... Leveled. True, except then you have all these crazy, like, talented people that came together and rallied, and then they created that high, like, steaming pile of shit movie. That movie was brilliant. That movie was very funny. It was beautiful to look at. It was one of the most progressive action movies in a long time. It put so many minority actors to work that never get leads and stuff like that. People loved it. It made a ton of money. I mean, it, it was just physically very beautiful. The action in it was very well done. There's, no, it, there's nothing stupid about that movie at all. It doesn't have to be Calvary to be smart. I would say something like um, Let's Be Cops was stupid. Yeah. That was a stupid movie. That's a good because point. Because it didn't think through its own premise. And it shied away from what it wanted to do. It had this satire in the first half of the movie about these people who, who fall into um, being like monsters because they're wearing these uniforms. And that part, you know, you could go places with it. And then it just backed away from it because it didn't want to deal with the ramifications of its own idea. That was a stupid movie. And that's mindless and that's inconsiderate. And that's all those things that people imply when yeah. they say something is Whereas stupid. Fast Five knows exactly what it wants to do. And it is very consistent and very methodical about getting there. And it's very fun while it does it. It's not a stupid movie. 
It took a lot to make it. Most people are just going to lump those all in together and they're not going to look at each one as individual films. You know, like it's it's easy for somebody to miss that Fast Five is good if they, you know, are just fed up with the idea of them coming out every single year. And maybe they saw the first one and they didn't like it. I mean, yeah, you don't have to think it's good to not think it's stupid, you know? Sure. I mean, there are plenty of movies that I don't think are any good that aren't. I mean... Guardians of the Galaxy, I'd rather cut my dick off than watch that. But it's not stupid. Right. You know, like it knows I just think what you're being really literal. It's getting there. But it's I wouldn't, just, this is this something sounds like that a you, semantics argument. No, this is something that you hear so much in criticism. And semantics, I think, is very important in talking about movies. I wouldn't just go out and watch Fast Five if I didn't hear a recommendation from you about it. Because I would just love that one in with the rest of them. And just think, all right, well, I'm not going to ever watch those movies. It's easy to like push them all off the table when there's like seven or eight of them and they just aren't appealing. But when you talk about Fast Five, it makes me want to see Fast Five. It's a great movie. Fast Six is great, too. Seven's probably going to be really good. Seven's the one where it's like half CGI Paul Walker. Something like that. It's not out yet, so we don't really. Yeah, I heard that that was something that they were doing with it. Oh, we'll have to wait and see. Even two, I think, was underrated. Two was really, uh, that was the John Singleton one. He directed that? Yeah. It it doesn't look like the rest of them, and it doesn't have Vin Diesel, so a lot of people kind of shy away from it. But if you know Vin Diesel's coming back, you can watch it, and you sit, and it's really, it's fun. It's it's very pretty. It's a lot of really nice natural light, sunlight, and that that was a good one. All right, so number them from best to worst, those guys. Five's the best one. Six is very close behind. Then I would say... Too Fast, Too Furious, which is very controversial. That's most people's bottom, I think. Has the best title, though. It does. So I would go five, six, two, one, four, and then Tokyo Drift is my least favorite. What makes Tokyo Drift so bad? It just, you know, it doesn't come together. It uh, just kind of drifts. Yeah. <laughs> Sonny Chiba's the bad guy in it, so it's kind of exciting. Oh, my God. But he's, you know, like, they don't give him anything to do. On paper, just, that would be the best one. Yeah, it has the best ending, so people remember it really well, but... It's a tough slog getting through to the ending. Was Chiba in that before Kill Bill or afterward? Right around the same time. It might have been a little after. I think maybe a couple years after. Good for him, though. Yeah, getting that money. So Let's Be Cops was your most hated movie of this year. Yeah, that was down there. Let's Be Cops is down there. VHS 3 was down there. You have a love-hate with uh, all the VHS ones, right? I do, because the thing is, I'm... On paper, a really big fan of found footage horror movies, and it's becoming harder and harder to be a fan of them. But I think, I mean, I'm always going to bat for Paranormal Activity because I think that first Paranormal Activity is, I mean, that movie is like a Chantal Ackerman horror movie. I mean, that's mm. like just structurally innovative and brilliant in a way that you see once a generation and everyone threw it aside. And Blair Witch, I think, is brilliant and Cloverfield I love. Um, and there's some, you know, like B level and C level found footage stuff that's really good. But the trouble with the genre is that when people use it as an excuse to not cohere and to not, you know, like structure their movie, right? Because it's just found, so that's yeah, an excuse so they're, to they'll, just they'll sort not of make flop a movie on the ground. Yeah. yeah. And the VHS series, for those who don't know, it's an anthology horror series uh, that ha- all has like a found footage gimmick. And the first one came out a few years ago. It I didn't like it. Almost at all, but it had two segments that I thought were really good. One was by Ty West, who did um, House of the Devil. Which I adore. I yeah. love that movie. And there's a there's a haunted house bit at the end that's really well done. VHS 2 was a big surprise for me. I really liked it. There's um, the guy who did um, The Raid and The Raid 2 directed one of the segments, and that was really stunning. And then uh, one of the directors of Blair Witch Project did one where... Uh, you're following this zombie who has a GoPro camera strapped to his head. That one's just really fun. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. VHS 2 was a pleasant surprise for me. So I was looking forward to the third one. And man, it is bad. Just not one of them that's redeeming. Bad. The frame story around the whole thing is just like, you can't even tell what's happening. And you can't tell why it's happening. And you don't really want to know because everybody is so repugnant. And it... um. One problem that you usually don't see in those movies is bad acting because it's usually pretty simple call and response type acting. It's right. usually a lot of, you know, just action acting, you know, movement based yeah. stuff. 
and it and the, whatever dialogue is usually like semi improvised. So usually you have kind of a nice feel of naturalism in that regard. And in this one, there was like noticeably poor over the top line deliveries and stuff, which really threw me because it's been a while since I'd seen those in a found footage underground. But it's different directors movie. for each short. Yeah, it, it was. Um, so that sucks. That four like different directors and none all of them, of them would be yeah. terrible at. That. None of them had what it took. It was a very, very. It was some of the worst editing I've seen in years. Oof. Because there were visually the last segment was, which is about, um, the idea is great. It's about these kids who go down to Tijuana to record skateboarding videos and get attacked like a, by like a devil cult of like skeleton <laughs> people. Yeah. I like that. And visually it's really cool. It's this bleached out sun drenched look and these, you know, like skateboarding video lenses. But the editing is a nightmare. They'll have these action scenes where it just holds on a GoPro pointing at one of the actors' faces for like 45 seconds. And then it'll cut back and you'll just barely see like the monsters coming at them. And and it's just like, it's a wreck. And then it's like 10 minutes getting there and five minutes when they're there. And the middle segment had this cool idea where it was about a guy who um, switches places with an alternate dimension version of himself. But, you know, it's like a one joke premise. There's, you know, there's a setup and a punchline and it take 25 minutes to get to the punchline. Mm. So, yeah, that one, um, that's down there for me because it was, it's part of this movement that I was a big supporter of for a while there that at this point, I think, I think I'm done with found footage, at least for the time being. Are any of them like supposed to be VHS tapes? Because it seems like the, the name first, is kind of arbitrary at this point. The first two were... It was all around this frame story of a guy who had a collection of snuff VHSs. But were the shorts made to look like VHS, like trash humpers? Uh, parts of the first one were. There was a lot of alternate camera usage in the first one, which is one of the coolest things about it. There's one video that was all shot from um, like spy lenses in a pair of eyeglasses. Mm-hmm. And then some of them have that. Like the frame story has a, a VHS look. But then third one, just not at all. Third one completely gave up on it, which is another big flaw with it. I mean, the first two really experimented a lot with how to shoot. There were a lot of um, alternate cameras in the the first two. And in this one, it was just so phoned in across the board. How about you, Jenna? Do you have a worst of 2014? I saw the theory of everything, which I, which like didn't do it for me. And I'm only going to mention that because I, I see it getting nominated for stuff. And I thought it was fairly disappointing. It was just pretty straightforward, like kind of, I mean, like there's interesting parts to it, but eh, I don't know, throw away. But then my most hated movie was most definitely Gone Girl, which I walked into off the street. I never watched, I never saw the book, you know, never saw the book. I never <laughs> read the book, never saw you it. probably saw it in a store. I don't, I never noticed it. And then... I just, you know, I, everyone kept saying it was going to be like Zodiac, and I like Zodiac, and the first half of that movie is really good. The setup is great. Ben Affleck is great. Ben Affleck's great? Yeah. he He's just so perfect as a smarmy husband that you can't tell if he killed his wife or not. Well, that's kind of why I liked uh, him in To the Wonder, that Malick. I really liked yeah. that you weren't really supposed to fully like him. I like him in those kind of roles where... You're not supposed to just love him unconditionally, you know? He's underrated lately. He's been on a little bit of a role as an actor. When he plays into that, he's great at it. And that's what I, you know, the whole movie, but I mean, obviously this is the book's fault because basically then the plot turns and the plot change is so fucking stupid. Is it abrupt? It's super abrupt and it's just dumb. It turns into a trashy like lifetime movie, which I guess is what the book is kind of meant to be. So like whatever, but it was just so unbelievable, so trashy, borderline misogynistic, you know, like, I I don't know. It was just the whole thing was just such a fucking bore. I was just bored out of my mind. Like, and it wasn't even fun trashy. It wasn't like, you know. Did it take itself too seriously to be fun trashy or something? It just felt, yeah, way too serious and then way too like oh, this woman's so evil. And she wasn't. She was just like a fucking loser. Like, everyone was a fucking loser. And then, and the ending was also like, and then they all lived, like, miserable. And you're like, fucking leave. Like, everyone just walk out of the situation. So many plot holes. I don't know. The whole thing was dumb. It would have been a great movie, though, how they just kept with Ben Affleck and maybe made it this sort of, like, morality play. (laughs) You know, like, maybe like an eyes wide shut kind of thing. 
where he, you know, he falls down this rabbit hole of, you know, nobody knowing if he did it or didn't do it. And then all of the consequences that come from it. And then maybe in the end have like, but she was alive or, but she's dead. You know, like, like she's so fucking trashy. Like I've seen better shit on Lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't get that at all. I do not understand that. And I, you know, man, I'm happy that that hasn't been getting any nods really. Because everyone was like going crazy. Oh my god, best film, best People film. People fizzled on it though when time passed. I think it's one Hopefully. of those ones that you hear less and less of it. Benjamin Button was like that too. Yeah, Fincher's he, bad when he's adapting books. You don't hear anything about except Button. for Fight Club. Fight Club was great, but other than that, he's bad when he's adapting books. And he he has this like whole strata of movies where. Everybody comes out of it real amped, and then two months later, nobody wants to talk about those movies. Well, I still love Zodiac. Zodiac is by far But that was a movie. book adaptation, right? This is like a true life adaptation. I mean, I think it's different. Well, there was that, that Zodiac book that he yeah, took a lot Yeah, but from. you know what I mean? I mean, that was yeah. sort of... And I guess it's not a hard and fast rule, because again, Fight Club is right. a phenomenal movie. But yeah, Gone Girl, um, I was all right with it when I walked out of theaters, and it's like the more time passes, the less I can muster for that movie. It was just so dumb. I mean, like, I my, I might have gotten more into it had I gone in not being told it was going to be like Zodiac because it it, totally, it was like, nothing like Zodiac. It was yeah. nothing like Zodiac. It also didn't know what it was because there were right. parts that were very funny, and like if it kept going with that, it could have worked. Like I remember, there's a part near the end where she's literally tucking Ben Affleck into bed, <laughs> and it's this great, like, really deadpan visual. And when it was like that, I was like riding with it. Like all the Tyler Perry stuff is great. He's so much fun in that movie. He actually, he was probably one of the better parts of that That's what I've heard, that he fucking knocks it out of the park. But it's because, you know, he's also playing this, like, creepy, misogynistic (laughs) morality guy. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's kind of his thing. But, like, yeah, I don't know. I had it maybe started off being maybe, like, just trashy and noir, maybe. Like, you know, it just had a different feeling. Yeah, all it had to do was just pick the movie it wanted to be. and then Exactly. And then I would have been fine with it. It just... the, the like tone change and it was just so dumb. It just I, like looking at my watch like so hard in that movie. So that was my most hated movie. Right on. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with questions from the mailbag. See you soon. And now a holiday joke from comedian Anthony Kapfer. It's the holiday season and it's that time of the year when you get together with your entire family And then you remember exactly why you don't speak to them the whole rest of the year. This has been a holiday joke from comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonykapfer.com. K-A-P... F-E-R. And we're back. First question is... All right, this is from Don Jamico, Jana I. Picar, and Fody Flark. And they ask, what are your favorite holiday movies? You know, like the Christmas time ones. Doesn't have to be Christmas, but it has to be that kind of time period, you know? <laughs> so that's the question. It's not a very well-constructed email, I have to say. Hey, you know what? Yeah, three people and kind of rambling. That's all they could come up with. Three people pounded that one out. (laughs) Well, they say too many writers. and nog drunk in the middle of the night. Yeah, too many cooks spoil the broth. Too many writers spoil the email. So true. Yeah. true. So, John, what's your favorite uh, holiday movie? Lethal Weapon. Of course. I love Lethal Weapon 1. People usually go for the Die Hard one. I don't even want to get it. I've I've had that fight, yeah. Too many times in my life. Lethal Weapon, Die that's Hard's your one. not for me. Lethal Weapon's for me. Lethal Weapon's, it just works. It's it's tight, tight script, really good back and forth between some actors at the top of their game, some fun action. And it does this thing that I really respond to because I grew up down south where it has like hot Christmas Right. You know, like you see that mix of almost famous does the same thing where you see like palm trees and the Santa Mm. and all that. And like that, that reminds me of Christmas more than the snow and shit, which doesn't remind me of anything. Christmas to me is really like palm trees with with the lights wrapped around them. (laughs) But yeah, I love Lethal Weapon 1. I I watch it. I want to say I watch it every Christmas, but I watch it just constantly. 
So what's the Christmas element in that? Well, it's all set during Christmas. Okay. There's that part, you know, where um, Danny Glover finds out finally that Riggs is truly suicidal and he yanks him into that store with all the big Christmas murals and he puts the the gun to his head and he he sticks his thumb in to stop the hammer from going off. And that's all, you know, in, in front of a big Christmas mural that's backwards because it's on the other side of the glass. And the opening of the movie is a shootout in a Christmas tree lot where he's buying the uh, cocaine from the uh, from the Christmas tree dealers. And he ends up shooting them and he's hiding among the trees and sort of lurking around and the, using that environment. And then there's the, the best scene in the movie, which is the scene that got um, that got Gibson the part of Hamlet in 96 was, is the scene where um, he's sitting watching Looney Tunes Christmas specials on TV with a gun to his head, just trying to decide whether or not he's going to kill himself. Which is not, you know, the most uplifting. Yeah, that's a real, but he doesn't. Real Christmas so that's, you know, it's like uh, it's like it's a wonderful life where it's got to take you real far down to bring you back up. Yeah, you can get dark with like one of my favorites is One Magic Christmas, and that's dark as shit. I mean, you got creepy ass Harry Dean Stanton in it, just like dressed like a child molester, talking to kids <laughs> and stuff, and sneaking into their bedrooms. Give and- people a little setup for this one, because you pointed this movie to me, and I'd never heard of it before, and it really threw me threw me for a loop. Yeah, this was one of those ones where, like, when we first met, I was like, no, you have to see this crazy fucking movie. One Magic Christmas is, uh, it's Mary Steenburgen, and it's it was a Disney film, and it was one of those live-action Disney ones that just... It was before the Disney Channel live action thing where that was just all they did. It was like, I think, 85. And it was a very interesting movie and people didn't really know how to take it. I remember Ebert kind of trashing it, but sort of liking it at the same time. And it's got a very great tonal shift where there's a lot of realism and there's a lot of very real violence and tragedy in it. I don't want to spoil too much of it, but... It's a great mix of naturalism and romanticism in one movie. And that's what I think some of the best Christmas movies are, is that they have the very real thing, but also something that just makes it a little bit magical, like with Home Alone or something. Christmas movies are the closest, I think, American pop culture comes to magical realism. Yeah. It's the one time that we just accept it. Christmas and Halloween. And One Magic Christmas, it just gets so dark that you can't even imagine how it's going to come out of the darkness. And it's so realistically dark that you just buy into the fact that it's just going to be grim. And then, of course, it you know, it's got a happy ending. But the road getting there is just very twisted and weird. It's almost like a Twilight Zone. It has like this just you feel so horrible for this this housewife and her kids and everything. And. It just wasn't something that people would want to go see in theaters, but it took on like a cult following afterwards. Like it's it's a pretty well revered one now and not too many people know about it. But the people that know about it, either they were scarred by it when they were younger and were like, what the fuck was that movie that I saw? (laughs) Or, you know, they just were older when they saw it and just really digged it. It was one of my mom's favorite Christmas movies. It was just fantastic movie. It's I a Wonderful Life it. is like that too, though. When you really look at that movie with fresh eyes, I mean, it takes you so far down sure. before it picks you back up. People remember that movie as very happy, but the bulk of that movie is brutally fresh off the war, fresh off the depression, just horrendously depressing. I mean, that the first maybe hour of that movie is like the closest thing America ever came to neorealism. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's it's an interesting thing about Christmas movies. The really good ones, I think, let you let you hurt a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Jeez, what is it about Christmas? <laughs> hey, you got to feel pain to feel pleasure, Jenna. <laughs> <Yeah>, Christ, <laughs> that's funny. The only the only Christmas movies that I can think of that I've ever liked were cartoons. <laughs> what did you like? So like Mr. Magoo's Christmas is the classic. Is that like an old sixties one? Yeah, and apparently it was the only like. A Christmas special, like on TV, until uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer came oh, wow. around. Does but, he comically dress a Christmas tree in a series of mistakes? Because I'm imagining that in my head, and it's really working for me. Yeah, that's plausible. If he's like tripping, and he sends a whole box of ornaments in the air, and then they all land on the tree perfectly. Is there that, anything like that? I it's con- did I just write Mr. Magoo's Christmas? <laughs> I believe so. 
You know, I swear to God, I haven't seen it in so long, honestly. But it it stuck out. I remember it. I remember, but I remember the music's really good. But it's like that kind of old style Broadway music, which I like a lot. And I really, I it's just, it's good. It does kind of get you emotionally. But like, man, I, I just, it's been way too long since I've seen it. The other only other movie I can think of was <laughs> also a TV made for TV movie, which is the Garfield a Garfield Christmas. Which is well, said to come down and Mr. Magoo comically misidentifies him as just a man in his pajamas. <laughs> no, Mr. Magoo is the, is the old cranky guy. I think you need to reboot this. <laughs> I have a lot of vision for what Mr. Magoo's Christmas is going to look like. <laughs> but the Garfield Christmas was great, too. Well, that was a great show. That show, yeah, Lorenzo Music. That show was actually One really of the greatest funny. names ever, by the way. Yes, agreed. Lorenzo Music. But that show that was, was a good deadpan, that show genuinely funny yeah. that show there's a bunch of good like one-off jokes that even like sort of stick with me now and like I, yeah the christmas special was just like good solid writing so i would recommend what'd those. you think of the peanuts one the all-time classic i, I never liked ever the peanuts. seen it are you kidding me i hate <laughs> yo i am ride or die with charlie brown peanuts suck yeah his little, you are so wrong bro. <laughs> and he had his little christmas tree with the two planks of wood man i love that see that one was a little more like though has, that has good music Hell yeah, it does. But uh, that was a little more like that's a, that's too a, Christmassy that's a total for me. Package that one. Peanuts fucking bored me as a kid. I hated that. It was like I was like being forced to do like schoolwork. Yo, it was that kind of check disgusting. Yourself. You gotta go like <laughs> read <laughs> the first few years of Peanuts in the newspaper. I like, I like the newspaper version. It is it's so like the dark. fucking cartoon, man. Yeah, the cartoon. I like, I like right. his voice. I'm just a big fan of Charlie Brown's voice. I like the song, you know, the yeah. Linus and Lucy. But other than that, I just don't give a shit about the fucking peanuts. I always like the parent, the adults that. Yeah, yeah, that's great too. <laughs> a lot of good sound design in Charlie Brown. Yeah. yeah, to be honest, absolutely. But I didn't like the voices of the kids. I, just I, I only like ever it. liked Snoopy because I only like dogs. I like animals. <laughs> <laughs> I like Pigpen. You don't like Pigpen? Meh. I like Schroeder. I related to Schroeder a lot. Kept his own counsel. They're good characters. Just did what he did. But I just didn't like the features. I was obsessed with the Garfield cartoon, definitely. That was a great cartoon, man. I also love the comic. <laughs> yeah, I remember on the school bus, he used to read Garfield all the time. Because they would put oh, out yeah. like 40 of them. Like the little anthologies that were like wider than they were tall, you know? I used to have this little I Garfield book. Yeah, they, that's... You had, like, I remember when we were kids, you had, like, 50 of them. Oh, easily. I had this great one. It was Garfield's, like, put-down slams and, like, <laughs> comebacks. The people are getting, like, a really good look at, like, just growing up smug film. Oh, yeah. The little Garfield books. Yeah, we, oh, me, yeah. And, me and Jenna rode uh, the elementary school bus together. That's right. Up until... Then there was a couple of lost years and then high school. Yeah. We, yeah, we didn't go to the same middle school, but then we went to the same high school. And then we rode the uh, public bus together, pretty much. Cody's my oldest friend. I've known him for over 20 years. That's right. Which is messed up. Yeah. I don't know who John is. He's new. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's fairly recent. Yeah, uh, I'm he's a recent addition. But yeah, you used to read those fuckers all the time. <laughs> I remember you always had a fucking new one, too, because they came oh, yeah. out like every six weeks or something, you know? I think my parents wanted to encourage me to read. <laughs> <laughs> Pictures be damned. I had all the Calvin and Hobbes when I was a kid, and I had the oh, yeah. the same, you know, soft cover paperback versions. And then when the complete Calvin and Hobbes came out, my parents got it for me for my 17th birthday, which is like a great gift. I still have it somewhere. But it was, I mean, the thing's like probably like 25 pounds. Yeah. It's just these heavy, heavy it's heavier stock. than you were when you were reading them as a kid. <laughs> yeah, it's just this heavy stock Three hardcover books. Yeah. First thing I did with it was dropped it right on my foot. And I still, the, my copy of it is still dented in the corner from my, from my foot. <laughs> is there any sustaining damage on your toe or anything? I was limping for like a week. I had a big old <laughs> bruise, but I made I think it through the, it. I pushed through. I think through. those hardcover ones are out of print now. They have like a paperback version of that exact same edition. They have a smaller hardcover version of it. I saw it in Barnes & Noble the other day, but it's, it's scaled down. Okay. Because the, the first edition that came out was like, it was literally like the size of a coffee table almost. Right. It was a very big book. And now they've made it like normal book sized. But I think the idea was um, that in the other edition, they were pretty much the size they were in the newspaper. They weren't, right. they weren't pushed down any. Yeah, it's like with the Absolute Watchman, which is directly behind John D'Amico's head. It's like the full actual size print with the actual colors. 
rather than like the scrunched down version of the Watchmen that was in the comic books and in the, you know, the graphic novel collection. Also directly behind me is the complete Seinfeld. Damn right there is. <laughs> and Batman, the animated series and a bunch of heavy metals. And, uh, and a mysterious Uncle Scrooge book. Oh, it's so good. Take that down. It's a fantastic book. Uncle Scrooge, only a poor old man. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Carl Barks, the guy who drew all that. That Seinfeld is your all other alternative for a holiday cheer. Oh, yeah? Festivus, come on. Just watch we that. Had a, we had a Festivus poll when I was a kid. We oh my kept God. it up in the house because we didn't, except for my sister, nobody was really into Christmas in my family. Oh, I didn't And nobody wanted, to deal with a, um, nobody wanted to deal with a tree. So um, my mom put up a Festivus poll for like three years running. It was like a legend in the community. Huh. All my sister's friends were like, really? And mine were like, yeah, that checks out. Isn't that great, that <laughs> book? Yeah, this is a, a nice little book. Carl Barks was fantastic. Yeah, they're like at Devil's Tower here. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. You flip through these and you see a lot of what Spielberg would start to do. You oh, yeah. That like was three a, or four frames already. Yeah, the Carl Barks stuff was a huge influence on George Lucas and Spielberg. Yeah, the whole uh, opening of Indiana Jones is just patterned right off of this book. There's even a uh, a foreword in the in that book by uh, George Lucas. Really good book. There you got you have a uh, several movies, stories of childhood, uh-huh. book recommendations, yeah. and some TV thrown in there. That's that's a that's a goddamn Christmas. Can, Can I, I throw another pretty good Christmas music stuff. out there though? For Christmas, do you guys remember Batman Returns? Of course, we remember Batman Returns. Yeah. Batman Returns was. Buck Wild. That movie was so good. And then the last Batman movie, nobody ever talked about it, but was pretty much just a remake of Batman Returns, only not fun. Right. It took all it the was, fun stuff Yeah, it was out. like about a, a criminal mastermind who became a politician and then knocked Batman out of the way, took over the city, all set during Christmas time. Catwoman was there as sort of like the wild card. You know, like it was it was Batman Returns. Yeah. But it wasn't fun. Absolutely Batman not. Batman Returns is so pretty. And so I, I, where did that Tim Burton go? Oh. Where did the Tim Burton who did Batman Returns? That could be a whole Beetlejuice, episode of Edward itself. Scissorhands. Yeah. yeah, Big Eyes is coming out, which I'm very curious about because of that. Like, yeah, I want, you know, a non Johnny Depp Tim Burton movie. Mm. That isn't about bullshit CGI. And, you know, maybe Johnny Depp happened. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe. He got too obsessed with Johnny Depp and Hell on the Bottom Carter. I mean, it's a shame. You think about how good Ed Wood was. Yeah. Uh, but, Edward Scissorhands' is a Christmas movie. That's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, it is. a go. brilliant and, movie. And like Batman Returns, it does snow so well. I mean, oh, those yeah. snow sequences are just beautiful in both of those movies. It's really like ethereal. Yeah, I love Batman. I, Batman Returns is my favorite Batman movie, which is high praise because... The other Batman movie has a Prince soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is unbeatable. Yeah. I don't like that that first one as a movie too much. I like elements of it, but that first Batman one, it's kind of all over the place. I don't like the plotting of it at all. Yeah, it's a little wonky. I really like Michael Keaton in it. Of course, yeah. And um, it's one of those ones where I actually think the best stuff in that movie is when he's Bruce Wayne. There are some know? terrible sequences in that, like the at the art museum and stuff, where it's like he's listening to like... I guess he's isn't it playing Prince when yeah, like, the Joker's Prince. there? Um, he's like painting over stuff. It's just fucking dumb. Yeah, I, that part wasn't great. The best parts, I think, are. Um, I mean, there's that part where they have the party at like Bruce Wayne's house. Yeah, and and Vicky Vale and the other guy are talking Robert about Robert Wall. Yeah, yeah, they're talking about where to get this thing. <laughs> and Bruce Wayne rolls up behind them. He's like, "I got it in Japan." And just these like really nice little beats where he's Bruce Wayne that were really good in that movie. He was definitely the best as Bruce Wayne. People talk about how he's the best suit also. And he had the best Batmobile. People say he's the best Batman, but they that's downplaying how great a Bruce Wayne he was. I mean, the sequence where he's in Vicky Vale's apartment and the Joker comes in and he puts the the serving tray under his chest to be the bulletproof vest. The whole let's get nuts thing. I mean, that's just really spectacular. Mm. Keaton's Keaton's a treasure, man. He's a national treasure. Did you like Birdman? Yeah, I liked Birdman. Uh, It felt like it started to lose itself by the end. I think it would have been great if it ended 30 seconds earlier. 
Yeah, the ending didn't really sit right with me either. I thought the whole movie was such a damning movie about actors and acting. And then in the end, it was a little too optimistic for me. I felt like it was basically like the you have this uh, uh, Inaratu, right, is is telling you the whole movie like, fuck actors, fuck acting. And in the end, he was like, but there's something redeemable. And you're like... No, nah, well, like you just told me for two hours there was nothing redeemable. Like I'm, I'm with you on that point. It's not even that for me at all. It's just that it, you felt like it had this very clear um, build, and then it just it resolved it, and then it just had to like it felt like it had to give you one extra twist almost, mm. and then that you know you're like no, it, at least I was like it, it, it already ended. I don't like extra twists. Let me just say that. That's a thing. You know what? We could do it. You whole know, the only episode. great extra twist, the only stone cold great one. Which one? Carrie. Oh, Very yes. Carrie. De Palma. I love De Palma extra twists because it just feels like icing on the cake. Like just a little bit more icing on your slice that you cut from the cake. Like, you know, you, you're about to eat it. And then the guy who made the cake takes this a little bit more icing and gives you it just out of the kindness of his heart. That's what a De Palma extra twist is. Yeah. But other like there are a lot of horror movies that do that where it's just fucking dumb. It's just stupid. Yeah, I it it's sort of it gets in filmmakers' own way a lot. I, sometimes it pays off. Like I mean, it's great in Friday the thirteenth. It probably makes that first movie. That's probably why so many people decided to do that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, you know there's this sort of whole generation of filmmakers who just patterned their endings on carrying on Friday the 13th without maybe even realizing they're doing it. And it's just, you know, like sometimes it doesn't, doesn't work. What I like better is the kind of like tales from the crypt ending where it's, it's an ending where it's a down ending, but it's so exuberant and fun. Like it's, it's horrible for the characters, but it's just, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It makes it like sillier and fun. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there's just this sort of Birdman was indicative of this kind of just like trend of the prestige did it too, like three times. Oh yeah. You know, it just goes a little, you can't have too many fucking too, endings. Yeah. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You can't, you just, <laughs> well, yeah, that's the classic example, but it's, <laughs> it's funny like, when know, like shorter movies do that same stupid shit. Carrie is like, if somebody leaves a party right when you're so excited that they came and so glad you saw them and you feel like you got everything you needed out of, talking to them and you're ready to see them go and you know you're right on your peak with them and then they pop back in with donuts yeah whereas birdman was like you had this really intense conversation you really you got a lot off your chest with this person and they're about to walk out the door and then they're like can i just get another cup of coffee <laughs> you know like yeah, you I, got can, a, I like that yeah it's it's a very fuzzy and sort of nebulous thing but you got to know just when to bow out yeah. You know who does a lot of uh, endings is uh, Wes Anderson. I remember Rushmore has he does like, a lot of endings. He does a lot of endings in his movie. Like yeah, in he Rushmore, does, yeah. there are a lot of just breaks where it's like end of a chapter, but it could have been like the. I end thought you meant each film. one of his films ended, and I was like, that. that yeah, you know what? I think that's true. I think every single one of his films had an ending, which yeah. is pretty impressive. But no, what I mean is that. In Rushmore especially, that's just the... Right. And I think Royal Tenenbaums too. They're just like these kind of nice moments towards where the end of the movie would be that he could have ended on, but then there's like the equivalent of an epilogue and then the equivalent of an epilogue after that. Yeah. Like the Royal Tenenbaums kind of wrap up with like the crash into the house. I just never really liked. I thought that was the weakest part of the movie. Yeah. And I think that... I don't think he ends particularly well... And I think he kind of covers up for that with like the slow motion ending that's like very epic. How did Grand Budapest end? Now I'm trying to, I don't really I remember how his one. movies end. That's ends. the only one I never finished. Really? I like Grand Budapest. That was I, one of the enjoyable pretty, movies Very of the pretty year. movie. But now I can't remember how it ended. Oh, it does have three endings because it has the ending of the, um, the like flashback and then the ending of the guy telling the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, And then, yeah, the, yeah, and then an Kingsley. ending of the woman who's being, the story is being told to. He's Mr. Ending. I forgot about number three there. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a beast at that in his prime. Cameron. James Cameron was like the Jordan of twist endings, you know, that just like extra ending. Because Terminator 1 writes the book on it when she smashes the thing in the machine and it crawls right out. Yeah. It actually does it twice because they'd crash the... Uh, That's a great third act. Yeah. Terminator, man, if you want to know how to make a movie, just take apart the first Terminator screenplay. Because when you think about it, that is probably the most complex story in popular narrative cinema 
and you never for a second feel like you're being explained to in that movie. Yeah. Even when they're literally explaining it to it, you just never feel that. There's none of that Christopher Nolan, let's tell you everything about yeah. what's going to transpire. Because you have like that exposition dump yeah. is when they're hiding in the car and he's whispering it. <laughs> and just like that small touch really, you know, it takes it to the, the, the next level. But yeah, Terminator, you know, it, it ends when they blow him up outside the factory and restyes, but then it just walks out of the flames and then it ends again. Yeah. And uh, aliens, of course. But you know what it is? You know what his trick is? Every time, it doesn't just come back. It builds. Yeah. So with aliens, when they think they kill the queen and it comes back, that's when you finally get the payoff to the power loader bit. He pays something yeah, off in that extra. In. It's not yeah. an epilogue. It's not anything like yeah. that. It's and like- with, without the extra ending of Terminator, you don't get to see the exoskeleton. See, but on the flip side... Titanic, perfect example of too many endings, yeah, too just, much just stuff step going too on. Far. Yeah. Whereas the 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 very ending, I think, is beautiful when they're like back on the ship, right? But a little of that, but that modern day stuff. Yeah, before this is it, a little too much of that. Oof. Yeah, just a little bit too much. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the uh, the new season coming up. It'll be. First week of January, you're going to have all new episodes every single week, every Monday, starting then. So enjoy. All new Jenna Ipcar. That's right. All new John D'Amico. All new Cody Clark. We got got a bunch of like special smug film guests that haven't been on the show before. We got Brad Avery coming up. We got Chloe Peltier. We got Greg DeLiso soon. We got all these great people lined up and we're going to have some some famous people on the show too. I'm calling it now. I don't know who. I'll find them. <laughs> we'll put them on. We'll get them in the studio. We're famous. getting Jeremy Piven. We're getting Jeremy Piven. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Any parting words from you guys? 2014 was a good year, and I'm going to talk right over Merry Christmas. I'm going right. to say Happy Hanukkah. All right, John. I already said it was Merry Christmas. Oh, okay. And Happy. Well, she got Hanukkah, so, you know, Kwanzaa. Christmas. Yeah. What is it? Crazy Kwanzaa? Crazy Kwanzaa. All right. See y'all. Bye-bye.